Welcome to Unashamed Unafraid, a show unashamed about sexual addiction recovery and unafraid of coming into Christ for healing. Where we talk about real recovery stories, answer anonymous questions with experts, and share resources that actually work. I'm your host, Steve. And I'm your co-host, James. And we are Unashamed Unafraid. Hey guys, um, welcome back to another Anonymous Question episode. Uh, We love these episodes. I want to give everyone a huge shout out. We have three questions, a big one on bipolar um, disorder and how that kind of affects addiction, one talking about dailies, another one talking about shame. Um, To our shame question submitter, we want you to know this is such a big topic. Uh, We're going to kind of answer your question here, but also we just want to do a whole nother post on shame. I am feeling shame that we haven't done a post yet on shame, so we're going to try and get past that. Um, We we love just getting a lot of different perspectives, and so um, we both, you know, me, James, and Chris um, all got in the studio uh, with Todd Olson, uh, one of the founders of Lifestar Network and the whole Lifestar organization. Um, I can't say enough about Todd, just his experience and his background, and he's a great storyteller and has a lot of experience to share. So with the bipolar question, we definitely wanted to have a therapist with us and and the background. And so um, hopefully we answer these questions. Uh, those who submitted, hopefully we answer them well. If anyone else has anonymous questions, we invite you to share a recovery story. Let us know about it. Um, and with that, we'll get in the studio with uh, all the guys and Todd. Todd, always a pleasure. Thank you. Um, I guess you we could technically qualify you as a regular-ish, as I think this is the third time. Yeah. So welcome back, I guess, is the right way to say it. Um, Chris and James, the usuals. Yep, we're on here. It's glad to be here. Um, so we're, we're just going to jump right in. Um, I know we've already said this, but awesome that these people reach out and share these questions. So um, the the first one is probably our uh, why we have Todd here as our heavy hitter. Um, so let's read it. James, you want to read the first one? Yeah. Hypersexuality. Does hypersexuality and those with bipolar disorder have any relevance here? The urges to act out to feed that sexual desire can be overwhelming. At this point, sex is not fun. It's more of a compulsion. It can lead to affairs, excessive masturbation, sometimes, many times in one day, and more. How does one overcome this, especially since bipolar disorder is a lifelong disease? How does one reconcile breaking the commandments with such a serious sin and feeling the shame and fear that this will happen again? Okay, Todd. <laughs> yeah. And, and the reason up. why we brought you in here. You bet. So there's, there are... Uh, several questions there to answer. And first of all, um, this uh, responder has uh, awareness that they have bipolar disorder, which is so crucial. And to know their style and their symptoms is very important. It sounds like the the caller has that, um, that knowledge. And they're right. In fact, that that hypersexuality is it's like beyond lust it's insatiable it's like irresistible it's like there so help so help everyone because i feel like a lot of these disorders right you hear people like my my dad's a narcissist or that person right. is borderline personality so help us understand like 
not like buzzword what is bipolar disorder like sure. let's start they're like what actually is bipolar disorder okay so bipolar disorder has two uh traits characteristics of it that depression and mania and so there are depression with or bipolar with depressed mood and so that's like mostly depressed and then they'll have peaks of a day or two weeks of mania what do you mean by mania uh, that is where people go outside of their norm and about of their common sense of their um, value system and things like investing in money spending money uh, extremes extremes yeah so all the extremes. And then the hypersexuality is one of those extremes. So it's not like, hey, I'm bipolar, so I went to the mall and spent $100 on those shoes that I probably should have. It's like I went to the mall and spent $10,000. And I'm going to invest in that company and buy it and make a whole bunch more of them. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It's like... It's intense. It, it's intense. And okay. so what Chris said is extreme. It is extreme. Okay. And out of the norm. And it's a lifelong thing. It's not something that's... Yes, um, but it can be managed. So getting treatment it would include finding out what your cocktail of medication is. And so everybody's different on that. And you can have several, maybe three to four different medications on managing that. And you need to see the psychiatrist that specializes in that or the medical doctor or... Uh, advanced practice uh, nurse that does that. Okay. So it's manageable is what you're saying. So it's not, it doesn't have to be like, I mean, obviously like manageable and how they handle it and how it goes over time probably is different for everyone, but it's not, it doesn't have to be crazy town for your whole life is what you're saying. Correct. And one of the biggest things is staying on your medicine and people don't stay on their medicine because they feel fine. And then, they get off the medicine, and then some stressful thing or uh, life circumstance happens, and boom, they're back in. But <clears throat> I still didn't answer the question all the way of uh, what is bipolar. So there's <clears throat> several types. There's bipolar manic, right? So we just talked about what mania yeah. is going to extreme. And, uh, or bipolar depressed, sorry. Mostly depressed, and then uh, a period, short period of mania. Right. And the opposite of that is... Uh, bipolar mania and that's mania all the time and short depression and those guys are not around or they're in prison or they're in some psych ward yeah because if it's that intense that extreme of behavior all the time yeah they're not gonna it's gonna catch up with you if they're not medicated that's gonna happen and then there's bipolar mixed and that's a way tough one uh you are depressed and manic at the same time, it feels like, and you, it, they'll feel like no one understands them and what it's like. I'm both at the same time. How can you be that? Just believe me, it's that way. And That's how my dad was. Yeah. So it would be hard for him to explain that to somebody, but it's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. And then there's uh, the mild forms of it. So there's the mixture. Those are kind of the... the yeah. 
different types of right. bipolar. So they submitted the question. We're not sure where they are in that, you know, but like I said, it, it sounds like from the question, you know, they know they're bipolar. They have some diagnosis around that. So, you know, I guess let's jump in where they're saying, okay, how does that fit with hypersexuality? And yeah, first, so first of all, I'm hoping they, ha- they're being treated. Yeah. Second of all, to kind of normalize that hypersexual behavior, like the research shows that 57% of people with bipolar at, during their mania phase have hypersexual activity and behavior. Oh, that's a big number. And so they're, the, the uh, caller, what do you call people that write in? Call it the caller? Uh, our <laughs> anonymous the, question <laughs> submitter. Okay, the uh, submitter. You, you, if you want to call him the caller, Todd, you call him whatever you want. Uh, the person submitting the question, that's easier to say caller. Yeah, we have a rotary phone here in my office. Uh, If you ever find that number, it will be anonymous. There's no color ID. Um, All right. So anyway, um, to to humanize and, you know, have a common humanity that they are not alone, they will feel alone, and there is so much shame and embarrassment and humiliation to go get help around the hypersexual behavior that they don't do it. So people won't do it. But I encourage them to go. They need to tell their story. They need to get help and get on the medicine. So, Todd, in, at the last part of this letter here, um, you know, the, the caller is saying, how does one reconcile breaking the commandments with such a serious sin and feelings of shame and fear that this will happen again? What would your response be to that person? Um, getting the right treatment will help that person reduce their shame. And it's um, it's a tough deal, right? But someone needs to hear their story, and if there is a support group, that would be tremendous. And there there are some uh, websites that I recommend, um, and some readings that would help if they're not um, educated on this. But we'll give those at the end of the yeah. We'll we'll attach them if you go to the website. We'll put them on the with the post. We always put the resources with the post. So question will be up there. We'll put the resources if if you don't if you're a new listener, new caller. So uh, doing things right, perfectionism, it's so shame based versus making mistakes or I have this disorder. And I'm glad the person actually said that because people can use it for an excuse to act out sexually. And, yeah. and of course, that's not going to be accountable. They're not going to be responsible and accountable for what they're doing. And they do need to be accountable. They need to have a treatment plan and learn the things that activate their bipolar so that they can avoid that yeah. and are, are anticipated. Yeah, well, and I like what you said, that, I mean, because it's over 50% have hypersexuality. And so there's like, you know, everyone deals with this. I mean, I know I, I don't struggle with bipolar and haven't had that, don't have any experience with that. But I know just like with my own stuff, you know, when I was able to like first go to group, and I'm like, oh, I'm not the only person who saw porn in, on the internet as a small kid and didn't know what to do. Like, oh, okay, I'm not like crazy or I'm not super bad. So I think just what you said is, I mean, there's a lot of de-shaming, I think, just in that. Like, what this person's experiencing isn't outside of the norm, right? Right. And so it sounds like that they're faith-based, God-fearing, good people. And uh, <clears throat> I think if it's there's a loving God out there, that they, he understands 
He and knows you're bipolar. He knows yeah, what you're doing. He knows with. That what's going on, and he's there to keep loving you and, and helping you through this. And so uh, watch out for pre- perfectionism. And shame uh, is uh, the master emotion of silence and don't speak. Totally. So I'm going to break through that. So we're going to get some more of those professional resource website put that on there. But I love what you're saying, Todd. And, and Chris, I'm probably going to turn to you and say, you know, if you were this person, like, how would you take that to God and, and kind of find that acceptance and that compassion from him like like Todd's describing? Well, <clears throat> I think first of all, I would just understand that even though – I would be doing all these things that God still loves me. He doesn't love me any less because of me uh, with dealing with masturbation and dealing with all these struggles. But then taking it that God, to God is just, you know, sometimes you'll feel so much of that shame and so much um, anger at yourself. And sometimes you're just, you've just got to surrender those feelings. You got to go to God and really like, even just if, if it, to paint the image of it, of like kneeling on your knees and holding out like a platter, like you're holding out your feelings and say, God, take this from me. I, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. And you ne- I need you to take this from me. Even if it's for five minutes, I need you to just take this from me. Yeah. And name it. I like that because you're put, to put those feelings out. You got to name them, right? Right. Name what's going on. Be honest about what's going on. Because I feel like I was really dishonest with God for a long time. I, didn't, I never said those words. God, I'm ashamed of what I've done. I never said that to him. So I think that it's important to know that when that would happen would be during the depression part of it. It's not going to happen during the mania right. because the person's out there and it's like unstoppable almost. And, and after everything's done, and then they're going to feel terrible, right? And so they're, going to, they're probably going to need some help, like what you're saying, Chris. And if they're in treatment, the therapist can help them do that. If not, they need to have a good friend that understands what's going on and help them and, and be with them when they go to God uh, and walk them through it. Or, or if you're listening to this and you have this issue, listen to what Chris just said and, and try that. Uh, when you're not depressed, you can do it. But right afterwards, it's really hard. Yeah. Well, and I think just to highlight the other thing you said is everyone's story needs to be heard. You know, this anonymous question submitter, like, you, no one, none of us can do our big struggles alone. So there has to be people who know your story, can walk your journey with you. And that's something I've helped is if, is if you pray to have people in your life that can really be there for you, I think God will put those people in your life. James? Yeah. So, you know, I think that with sexual sin, um, I think that's the tool that the adversary that shame is the tool that the adversary uses the most, especially with the sexual sin, because culturally, you know, in America and, you know, in, in Christian religion, sexual sexuality often is so much uh, shamed in and of itself, yeah. let alone sexual acting out. What right? they highlighted, there's uh-huh. these commandments, and if you break them, you are out. Right. And yeah. so there's this sort of really big fear around sexuality and sexual sin. And Satan's going to use that basically to hook up the shame IV to you and Mm, just pump you full of shame because of those behaviors that you're doing. And when we look at the perspective of 
if if sin is sin, regardless of what it is, you know the fav- the kind of popular bumper sticker, "Don't judge me because my sins are different sins, than yours." You know, just look different than yours. But if we consider that sin is sin, can that help just remove a little bit of that shame out of that person's thought and psyche, so that they can start to then move forward with some hope and some confidence that okay, if God can love that guy over there for his sins then may, and will help him and forgive him or her, then maybe God will also forgive me for my sins, even though I think that my sins are much, much bigger than theirs. Yeah. Right? And if totally. that, that internal dialogue like that. about how do I reconcile, because that's what they're asking is how do I reconcile this? And so for me, it's, um, it's understanding that sin is sin and that God will love us no matter what. So if we take the instance of the woman that was taken in adultery before Jesus and the men wanted to stone her, and ultimately after they all left, Jesus said, where are thine accusers? And she says, there are none. And he says, neither do I condemn thee. And that's where this person is at. God does not condemn you. And I, and I love what Todd said. God knows what cards you've been dealt. So to this caller, our anonymous question person, God knows you got the bipolar card. He knows what you're dealing with and, and, and all the other cards, right? Family circumstance, you know, Todd, you brought up how important it was for treatment. Maybe they're having a hard time paying for it. Maybe they're having a hard time finding it. Maybe, you know, I don't know what they're dealing with, but God knows, God knows what you're dealing with. Final word on that one, Todd. Anything else you want to say on that question? No, I, I get help and get support and go to God. I think those are really good things that everybody said here tonight. And we'll, ha- we'll have some resources on the page. Uh, so we have two more questions. We're three questions deep t- tonight. Uh, Chris? So, dailies. I'm a recovering addict to pornography as Me well. Me too. Right on, bro. <laughs> Me too. As well as an ARP missionaries. I did my recovery a little backwards because I got called to be an ARP missionary got inspired to make changes and started working this day. Okay, let me let me do a quick culture check here. So the the ARP is is Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints slang for their 12 step. So right. so the LDS Addition Church recovery program. The LDS Church has adopted the AA 12 step program and they run 12 step like SA meetings to put it that way. And so what they do is everyone in the church no one gets paid in the church, right? Everyone just volunteers for jobs. So they got called. Their volunteer job to calling serve in the church was to facilitate one of these groups. Correct. Just to tra- if if you, if you're not if you know if you're not LDS, you'd be like what? So I just want to translate that. Sorry. Perfect. No, you're good. I got called to be an ARP missionaries. Got inspired to make changes and started working the steps. I feel like I'm fairly new to the twelve step recovery scene. My question is about dailies. I hear people talk about doing their dailies, and I'm not exactly sure what they mean. I understand the importance of daily communion with God and meaningful scripture study, but but is there more that I am missing? Can you explain what people mean and when they talk about what they mean when they talk about dailies? I, I'm laughing because James is shaking his head. Big, like, big nods, yes. Big, well, <laughs> big nods in that I'm like, first off, excellent question. And we all know exactly what you're asking because we all have asked that exact same question. Right? Right. Yeah. Totally. Todd? So for, first of all, I want to go back to the ARP acronym. And um, 
if you're a facilitator for that, people that are brand new coming to you will actually think they're in a program because it's, it's a little bit mislabeled. It's a addiction recovery support group. And, and so they can think they're in a program, a, like a recovery program, and they have no idea what therapy is. And they may get really hopeless if, yeah. if the support group isn't enough for them. Yeah, and individual therapy or group therapy has a very different dynamic. Right. Yeah, because in 12-step, in everyone's sharing and supporting. But in group therapy, you have a, a, a qualified therapist there. Right. So a question like the bipolar comes up, therapist, like you'd be like, here's the real answer. There's, yep. Correct. Yeah. So, but then tell, so tell Miss, you know, dailies, right? He's, he's kind of trying to check the boxes. He's right. like, I understand. I'm supposed to kind of. Yeah. So what happens with the biology and the physiology of this addiction with any addiction is it, it hijacks the brain. And so our prefrontal cortex is the main thing that's hijacked, and that's our command center, our executive center of the brain. It's where we do forward thinking, learning from past mistakes, organization, uh, procrastination, uh, uh, the ability to do empathy. That's all there, and in all the research, that part of the brain is hijacked. And so, in other words, your brake system is shot. And the brake system of stopping you from stopping yourself from doing something that you should stop yourself doing, right? Like acting out sexually. Yeah. yeah. Logical right. decisions go out the window. You're correct. And so one of the things of dailies is part of the temporary brake system while the person, especially in the beginning, is starting to do their recovery. There needs to be a temporary brake system. And dailies are one of those that will help the recovering person stay on track while their brain heals. You know, and in my experience, the the need for the dailies, I used to kind of kick against that when I first started um, therapy. I just thought, man, why can't I just be like everybody else out there and just be normal and not have to do all these dailies in order to be a healthy, happy human being? But what I didn't realize was that Everybody else does have to do the dailies, and they were doing them. I just thought the ones that I, who are happy and healthy, right? Are doing the, the happy and healthy people yeah. are already doing daily things that help them be that way. And I just thought that they could do it my way and yeah. and be happy. And I realized that that just isn't the case. Yeah, I'd like my life to be different, but I don't want to change what I'm doing. So what James is saying is really typical. That I don't want to uh, be told what to do, and. And that constrainment or that feeling of uh, being told, automatic rebellion. And I don't want to do that. And so that's often a subconscious rebellion. Uh, but <laughs> you got to get over that. Um, sometimes dailies. Well, let's talk about what dailies are first. Yeah, And then that's a good we'll idea. talk a little bit about. Right. That, that's really the main question. What are dailies? Yeah. And so dailies are anything that keeps you reminded about your recovery and what you need to do at this time right now in your life uh, that's going to be good for you. And some people will make these tasks like, um, so someone who's Christian or faith-based would say, I'm going to read my scriptures for 15 minutes. I'm going to pray. 
and I'm going to do these other things. And, and I'm, I stop them right there and say, so why, are you, why do you want prayer on there, and why do you have scriptures on there? And they think about that for a while. And, says, and while they're thinking, I'll say, because it's going to be a task, and you're going to check it off, and you've got to get those two columns in, and they will mean nothing to you. Because it's all of a sudden becomes this task, and it's almost a setup for relapse when when the dailies become this task that you have to check off. And so when they do that, it's like, what what are you really doing this for? And they'll often say, uh, to connect with God um, is what I want. And so I'll just respond back and say, so why don't you just make that one your daily? And then I don't care how you connect with God. And you have some freedom of choice there. Because a lot of people in recovery, mm. recovery do not like to be controlled, and there's a feeling of constraint on that. And so it's almost like you need to outsmart your brain a little bit. And, yeah, so if I can connect with God, and I can do that anyway, like watching the sunset, going for a walk, talking to God out loud, listening to some music, reading scriptures, whatever that is. And so you got to be really careful about dailies, that they don't become this task that becomes a hassle for you. they got to be purposeful. Yes. And so... And meaningful to you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and energize your body, right? So that's, that would be purposeful and meaningful. So those are some of the things of dailies. So Chris, what are some dailies that you've seen and the, your colleagues in recovery... Um, have done that has been helpful? Well, even uh, not so much of whatever everybody else has done, but something that has done that has been awesome for me is those books by Hazelden. Yeah. Um, we'll we'll put that on the resource page or at the bottom of this post as well. But um, those books were really good because what it does is it's a, a daily affirmation of feelings that I need to focus on for the day. And they ha- the cool thing about the Hazelden one is that sometimes they're related to God, sometimes they're not. It depends on what book you get mm-hmm. and depending on where you're at in your recovery and what you want to do and how you want to focus that. So for me, I kept it in my um, right in my truck so that before I walked into work every single day, I would pull that out and read what it was saying for the day. Um, it's 365 pages, so you have something for every day, and then I would read that. And I, what was cool about that was it allowed me to start paying attention to the feelings throughout my day. It, it would tell you specific, specifically what you need to focus on. Yeah. And then it was just it was just really something that helped me through my recovery. Good. So you, you can have a set of dailies, like I said, to meet you right where you're at at this time of your life. And so it might be that you make sure you do your chores around the house because you're, if you're so unorganized and that's an effect on your recovery, then you're going to say, I'm going to do my laundry on time, or I'm going to uh, uh, make sure the yard is done right, or it might be financially. Uh, do I keep track of my finances? Um, am I connecting with my spouse or my family or friends? Do I, um, am I reading 15 minutes of recovery reading uh, a day? So we we there's a lot of research out there, and we find out that when people relapse and they get discouraged with their recovery, you find out they've stopped doing recovery reading, and they stop attending meetings. Those two are really big. Uh, well, and I liked how you talked about like the rigidity 
because big ADHD guy here, right? I mean, I feel mm-hmm. like that's almost all of us today with the smartphone and everything. And so I, I, I was always about the perfection stuff. I mean, I can relate to that. So when I started recovery, I'm like, okay, I'm in recovery now. So I'll do recovery perfect. And how do you do it? And you check these. And I, I, I remember I made this whole sheet first therapist <laughs> I met with. And I was like, I was like, I do these 18 things every day. Like it was intense. I should find a copy of that so I can laugh about it. But, um, what I found is you, you can have those 18 things, but it doesn't have to be as rigid. And mm-hmm. I found for me now being a little more like having tried to practice dailies now for a longer period of time, you, I've found like sometimes it ebbs and flows. Like sometimes for me, a certain daily, you know, doing a certain reading, I'm like, this is it, man. I'm connecting with God on this. It's number one. And then two weeks later, because I'm ADHD, I'm like, that seems so rigid now and seems so rote. I got to do something else. So mm-hmm. for me personally, I like just kind of having a bucket of dailies. And then and then for me now, because I know what's in that bucket and, and it's and it's and I'm familiar with it, it's sometimes day of, I can be like, what's, what's where's my heart right now? Man, I should just sit and listen to some music and look at the lyrics, or I do need to read, mm-hmm. or I'm going to go attend a 12-step meeting to some just random group because that's the thing today. So so for me, taking the rigidity out of it, and, and I think all addicts struggle with that on some level because tr- you're trying to recover and be done and say you made it, and you're, and you're doing the right thing because we feel so bad about ourselves, right? We're so right. shame-based. And then what will happen is... You'll do this big set of dailies, and you might do it really good for two days. And then the third day, you don't follow through with them all. And then what does someone in recovery do? They get angry with themselves, and they, the shame comes in. I can't do this. And so they stop doing it, and then there's that all-or-nothing thinking, the black and white, so forget Hopeless. it. Yeah. So we encourage people to do dailies that's – Big enough for them to be a little bit of a stretch, but not overwhelming because we want them to do their daily. I had one guy that did one daily, and that's what finally saved him. And his daily was listening to Redeemed. Uh, by Big Daddy Weave. Yeah, by Big Daddy Weave. And I go, did you memorize it? Because he did it for 10 months. That would, like, kill me. But it's the one thing that saved him because it's the one thing he never thought there was hope for him. And he connected with God during that time, and it changed his life. So that was one daily he did that worked for him. See, uh, and I kind of did the same thing with um, the inheritance. The it's like a song talk that that we can post, but it's the inheritance and and how beautiful the words were in that is affected me so much when I first heard it. For the next thirty days, I think maybe in like sixty days, I listened to that every single day, every morning. I started my day with listening to that. Yeah. So as you get going on in your recovery, you'll change your – you might have some staples for your dailies that you stay. Like these are the three that I always do. But then things will change because you'll find out what triggers you or what activates your addiction. It, like phone calls not returned in 24 hours, unanswered emails, um, my car not being registered or running out of gas. And so you start – you start looking about what's going on with me and what do I need to add now as my daily wherever I'm at. So can I talk about, I think if we could just have everybody just give some examples of the variety of dailies to give this person just just some thoughts on and, and ideas on how they could approach some of their dailies going forward. So um, to your point, Steve, I, I needed a lot of liberty and freedom into what I would do. So um, for instance, I, I would go outside and I would... For quite a during it was in this 
summer months, I was going up the canyon every day. I was going over by the river, listening to the water, feeling the water, just kind of being outside and, and, Mm -hmm. and enjoying that. Um, I did things like um, I, I... And that actually helped you with your addiction and it helped you with your depression. Right. It helped with both. And Chris is using that daily right now. He's going on hikes all the time. Yeah. Um, and another... Th- but I but I did a ton of things. I, I, I was in a play. Um, I took art classes. I was looking for things that made me, to your point, Todd, you were saying, that just made me feel energized and alive mm-hmm. inside. Yeah. Right. Um, and so there's so many things that you can do to add those into the dailies. Music is huge for me. Um, I, I would come home and just sit down and listen to some music that would touch my soul. Um, breathing meditations that to just help me calm down. Um, I have, you know, some depression slash anxiety that'll, that'll come up and but it helps with both of those as well. Helps me recognize where I'm at, um, and that's just a couple of dailies. I mean, Chris, I know you've you've done a bunch. What what are some of the ones that you've tried over the years? Uh, so I talked about the book already. Um, one for me was praying, but praying in a different way. Um, I used to only pray when I would get in trouble, <laughs> and I I needed to go to God. Um, but then I was like, I got to do something different. So and then I also was like, well, I've I would slip. Um, I would have slips in the shower, and and so I'm like, I got to do something different. So I kept the door open so my wife can always see into the shower, and then that became in the shower became my time with God, and that was like because nobody else is awake, I'm there by myself, and I can just talk to God. And what was cool about that is is it saved me from so many slips, so many temptations would come up, and I'm like, no, I'm not going to slip because this is my time to be with God. And that I could sit and talk to him and like, I mean, my water bill would be a lot cheaper if, if I stopped doing that. But this is like, that's one important way for me to connect with God. And that's still what I do. And just different ways of, of praying. That's how your wife can track your prayers. Honey, are you still praying long? Because the water bill is less money this month. Right, yeah. So, and then another one too is, is from the first Warrior Heart boot camp that I went to was the very first one in June 2009. And you get dog tags up there. And I keep that dog tag with my keys. And, and I put my keys in my pocket every single day. And when I do, I hold that, that in my hand because I know exactly what I need to do, what I need to fight for. And one of those things that I need to fight for is I need to fight for my own heart. And I also need to fight for my connection with God. So yeah. it's, a, it's an awareness of what I need to fight for for the rest of the day. Yeah, so two two things that I think are important with dailies. Um, First of all, follow through. And it's hard for people to follow through with that. that, And it it would be good if they knew why. Um, So the brain will not want to keep doing something that's not an immediate reward. And Well, because addiction is an immediate reward. It's a boom snap, right? Knee jerk. Uh Right. And so... Uh, so, like we know that mindful meditation is a healthy, good thing. Research has shown that. And why can't we get people to do that? Because well, the first two weeks you do it sucks. It's <laughs> yeah. like a waste of time. <laughs> and why do they have an eight-week course? Because usually about week six, oh, this is pretty cool. I don't think I'll ever stop doing this. It's like they figured it out. And so if you track it, if you track your dailies, and are accountable for them, there's way higher likelihood that you're going to follow through. And, and then the other thing is you do them based on principle, not based on emotion. Especially like in about month three to six, if things start going pretty good, 
I don't even know if I need to do this. Uh, so I'm doing actually really good right now. I don't think I'll do my dailies. Or when it's really disrupting, this recovery sucks. It's so stupid. Nothing even works. I'm not going to do my dailies. Yeah, what a waste of time, yeah. And so that's based on emotion, not principle. So I do day, dailies because it's what I do. And it's just what I do. And I track them and I report them to my accountability partner or to my group. That's where I think group or accountability, you know, people knowing what's going on can be really helpful on that. Um, and and I think one for me that has been more recent, probably the last six months, is finding dailies that, because they're not always the same, but a t- that bring me to self-compassion as opposed to perfectionism. Mm. And so I had one the other day. So I, I've, I've set up these super rigid eating rules. I have this 10-year plan to like only eat perfect. And I'm like four years into it. The perfectionism. By year 10, he's just eating lettuce and that's totally. it. Totally. <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, just the perfectionism is reeking off this thing. And I remember one night, it kind of been a long day, and, and I, I was like, I need to find some self-compassion. And I'm going through the drive-thru at McDonald's for my kids or getting Kayla Diet Coke or something, I can't remember. And I'm like, I really like Big Macs. And I remember the dialogue I had with myself. I'm like, you know what? I'm not making an addict choice. I'm not saying if I eat one Big Mac, then I'm just going to start eating them all the time. And it's going to be compulsive or whatever. I'm like, I'm so rigid about this. And I could just feel the rigidity of it. So I got a Big Mac. So I got a Big Mac. I go, I don't think I've had one since. And I go and I, I pull into my garage and I just start eating this Big Mac. It's kind of a little emotional for now how stupid it is because that was such a perfectionism thing for me and it was so small. It was easy for me, like you're saying, like mm-hmm. in principle, to look at that and be like, in principle, this is perfectionism and I know it. So I'm going to figure out something right now in just an easy daily sense yeah. to, to have some self-compassion around that. And like self-compassion like washed over me as I mean this Big Mac is the stupidest thing. So I've done some things like that. And I think you can do more long-term. Like I got back in a rec basketball league and see my perfectionism growing up was like, after you're done playing competitively, whether it's high school or college, no one cares and it's a waste of time. About, Total- I bet it's exciting. Yeah. So it's, it's been exciting for me and it's been cool. And, and so that's, it comes up every week. So I know basically every Wednesday night, I already have a daily built in and I, and I may not play in a rec league forever ongoing, mm-hmm. but I know for the next like two or three months that I'm doing this, like it's been a good daily. So yeah. I think anything that's personal for you that attacks where you're not having self-compassion and, and you're doing perfectionism, checking that list. Right. I mean, that could be endless, right? Depending yeah. on who you are. And The three of you have mentioned things that are really crucial that we all need, and that's something creative about us in our life. And so creativity. Do I have anything like that going on in my work or my hobbies? And relaxation. Can I relax? Uh, do I know how to do that? So can I chill? And also um, excitement. Those three things are really good to think about for the temporary break system and looking at a healthy living thing. And then I know I'm just rambling on here, but one last thing I'm just thinking of for your brain. Remember how we said in the beginning your brain gets hijacked? Water. If you are dehydrated, your brain's going to get hijacked if your blood sugar's off you're going to do that halt acronym thing if you are what explain is the that halt tax? what is uh, yeah. halts like hungry angry lonely tired same thing as blast 
yeah, blast. I just want to make up a lonely. word and see if we can make it work. Yeah, now. we could. We could. We can do that. <laughs> Fugigated. <laughs> so, um, hydrate. So anything to get oxygen to your brain. So if you're doing those sixty-four ounce caffeine things or two monsters a day. Um, Ah, that so Chris Bennett. They all look at me. <laughs> it's like restricts blood Which I'm not flow to your brain. And so, no, we got to get, I mean, if you have a 12-ouncer a day, that's, you know, that's not a big deal, but um, you've got to get oxygen there. So, and, and so some aerobic exercise and get in your sleep. That's um, awesome. If you have sleep apnea, yeah, get it checked out because that's going to mess with your sleep and it's going to mess with your recovery and it's a setup for relapse. That's awesome. That's awesome. And we'll put, well, I've kind of been writing down some of these resources. If we set them, we'll put it again on the blog post. So dailies, James, you shook your head at the beginning of this thing and you're right on. We got to do it. So um, I'm, I'm going to lead us into our last question here. So, um, which is another really good one. Uh, shame cycle. What are effective tactics in breaking the shame cycle? I understand that there's a difference between shame. I am bad versus guilt. I've done a bad thing, but I'm spinning my wheels trying to break free from shame. What have folks shared that you found helpful on this aspect of addiction? So they're spinning their wheels, breaking free of this shame. So think about this statement there. There's a little bit of perfectionism in there, a little bit of absolute. Right. And so it's a, that's a setup right there. And so it could be the person's internal thinking, I've just got to get rid of this right now and make sure it never comes back. And so you've got to educate yourself on shame and become your own little expert on it. And to even know what a shame cycle is. Um, uh, The shame cycle, we should probably talk a little bit about that. Um, I think let's do that. Define the shame cycle, and then we can talk about kind of working around it. So the shame cycle, it starts out, um, with the control phase. And so the person is um, trying to get some control of their life or some part of their life. And so they will do some things in, in extreme. And it could be exercising. It could be saving money. It could be uh, cleaning um, how they eat. The list is endless, right? They're doing this. To try to get some control over their life. That's what they feel they need. Like one year, I paint must have been on sale because I, I swear there was like in every one of my groups, there was always three or four that were repainting their house. <laughs> uh, so rearranging furniture is a feeling of, okay, I, I've got control now. But it's shame-based. And so it's the traits of that are rigid. Uh, uh, pleasing, so I'm just going to please. And so think about managing outcome. Okay, I'm going to please. I'm going to appear self-righteous. I am going to uh, blame, and I am going to also. Let's see, what's another group? I'm going to placate. I'm not going to cause any waves. I'm just going to go with yeah. the flow. It it doesn't work, and it winds the person up. 
And you can't be perfect. So you're going to fail right. at, at whatever one of those tactics you're trying or multiple tactics. Right. Think of that. Think of those airplanes, those little balsa wood airplanes that we wind up with the elastic band. It would be like winding up that elastic band and it's going to break. Yeah. And so then the person acts out and that takes them to the other side of the cycle, which is called the release phase. And the release phase, also very connected to shame, but that's where all the addictive components are. And the traits on that side are things like self-indulgent, lacking self-control, um, all of the addictive type of tendencies. And it's the same person, two different traits, both sides of the, the cycle. And <clears throat> I feel like I would shame cycle huge. I mean, I would... because. Perfection, Steve, I get it done, man. Clean the whole house, do. I mean, that's in some ways I would joke with Kayla and be like, I think you liked Addict Steve better because of that in that control phase, how sure. hard I would try uh-huh. to overcompensate in all those ways you're saying. But then, I mean, just it come out too the back hard. end. It doesn't work. Right? Oh, no. And then, so now I have acted out or I've yelled at my kids or whatever the acting out is. And now I'm appalled about what I've done. And so now I'm going to act in, and I'm going to go over here to this control phase again, and I'm going to just try harder. I'll read my scriptures better. I'll fast longer. I'll pray longer. I'll clean better. I'm going to try harder. And it's a setup. Yeah, that's the cycle. You're stuck right? in the cycle. So that's the cycle. So what, one conversation we had, I'm going, to get, I'm going to get James and Chris's two-second version thought on this and give Todd the final word here, but... Um, we have for a long time been like, we really just need to do a whole episode on shame because right. it's so big. And so thank you, you know, uh, anonymous question submitter or caller, as Todd would say. We, um, <laughs> that y- makes you, us sound more professional. You, you've prompted us. No, this third caller, caller, I think we ought to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, we promise you we're going to key it up like soon, like sooner rather than later. We're going to key up a post like just completely about shame to really better answer this because I think in the next what, what we got five ten minutes we're not yeah. we're not going to do you justice so um, you know I think one or two you know what what's the one or two big things that comes to you with breaking the shame cycle comes up for you two guys and we'll name some resources too the only one I would tell you is Brene Brown she's just a really good job of just explaining shame talking about all the pieces around shame. So I definitely recommend Power of Vulnerability is the first read of hers. That's like her her master work. And then all these other books are kind of spinoffs of pieces of that. Um, so I, I would recommend that. It's only in audible form, but I'd recommend that. Um, Chris, what would you James. say? James? Me? I'll have you go first, yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, so again, uh, Brene Brown was huge for me. That was I spent the first year in my recovery li- reading and listening to everything that Brene Brown did. It helped me understand what shame did, what it sounded like, looked like, felt like, in in a way that could help me frame it into what I was experiencing. Um, as far as you know, breaking free from that shame, I felt like there were some serious God moments for me in this. Um, one of them was in. Um, finding some self-compassion. Um, I shared the this, this story earlier of the woman taken in adultery. That thought that Jesus does not, you know, neither do I condemn thee. Jesus does not condemn me. So I, ha- I had to keep letting myself hear that message and not be condemned. And what that allowed me to do was stop this self-criticism, the self-judgment, 
right? There was so much, you know, self-loathing and, and, and contempt for myself because there was so much judgment against my action. And so when I could start to practice a little bit of self-compassion around that and just say, okay, if Jesus doesn't condemn me, I don't have to condemn me. And what this happened is it changed my heart to where I actually stopped judging myself. And as a side effect of that, I actually stopped judging everybody else. It was a great feeling. One of the best things that's ever happened in my recovery. It was fantastic. I came from a you know, a home that was fairly critical and a lot of criticism going on. And so letting go of that self-criticism was huge. Um, you know, another aspect of that was really, or I guess an extension of that was really um, diving into the true character and nature of God and his love for me. Um, and that was a, that was a long work and continues to be a work that I do now. Um, looking for scriptures that are that prove and show the evidence of God's true nature as a God of mercy, compassion, um, comfort that rejoices over us that, you know, and there's so much there. Um, for a while I had to stop my normal way of praying, you know, to your point, Chris, I had to do something. I prayed differently. I stopped my normal way of praying and I just started to look for the evidence of who God really was because I recognized that I had, um, built up a God that, um, fueled my shame. And so being able to look for the opposite of that, so to speak, and look for the love. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I think it kind of, you're kind of connecting back into the dailies too, right? Mm-hmm. You you were using your dailies to attack shame. Right. I know, I know one for me, cause I was so rigid with church and, 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 you know, try harder as Todd said, I call it the try harder gospel. Um, I know one thing that I've done is I, I swear all the time now, and, and I don't generally condone that everyone should swear all the time or whatever, but for me, it's this reminder that I'm like, even if I say a couple swear words today, God is still going to love me. So it's almost like I, I test and watch. It's like I, I say these three swear words and I'm like, do you still love me, God? Or, or am I not? And, you know, so anything, I mean, yours is awesome. It's beautiful, James. Love it. Now you're mad you let him go first, huh? Yes. <laughs> now, for for me, I, I just got to a point where I didn't feel shame at all. Like, I, I was just numb because I was so numb and checked out to all my feelings that I didn't feel shame anymore. Um, and then when finally everything, like, started coming out and, and I started, like, really, like, checking in with my wife every day, um, that stuff started coming back a little What's bit. What's your comment, Todd? So that's that's what we call too little shame. And it's a result from too much shame. And you just have, you can't survive feeling that constant shame. And so you, you numb out. And the people that are close to you will feel like you don't even care. You, you don't even follow through with stuff. And it's like you can't care or else you'll die. The shame will be too heavy. Yeah. Right. Because like in the beginning, they would be like, well, why did you have, the, have your affairs? I have no idea. Like, I don't know yet. I'm still trying to figure out this whole thing, you know. And so with, with shame, one thing that I, I discovered, too, is that um, just because I have a temptation doesn't mean that I should feel that shame and that I should, I'm this bad person because I have all this temptation. And I'm like, you know what? Everybody's going to have temptation. It's what we do with that temptation. And so un- just understanding that I'm not bad because I have a temptation. Self-compassion. I'm okay with that. That's self-compassion. Self- self-compassion. self-compassion. Yep. I think all three of us hit on that. Todd, we're going to give you the final word on this one. 
Anything so, else you'd say? Yeah. Uh, what do we have? Just a couple minutes left here. Yeah, fifteen seconds. No, I'm just kidding. You're fine. <laughs> You're good. So, if you if you think about managing outcome, um, you've got to surrender that, and that becomes a very vulnerable thing to do when you've been managing outcome forever. And so, like brutal honesty, and um, letting go of outcomes is a very vulnerable thing. That's the golden key, right? And shame hates exposure. You're going to hide. You're going to withdraw. You're not going to want to get honest. But it is the golden key to, to break through with shame. Shame hates exposure, and the way out of shame is exposure uh, for you to tell your story. Stop isolating. Vulnerability. And so learning not to manage outcome is kind of a a way in. The next thing is what what is healthy shame, right? It's it is having enough shame that it corrects me in a course correction that if I'm going the wrong way, and it will stop me. It will motivate me to change. Yeah, I don't I don't run around in public naked. I don't right. yeah, stuff that's like you have enough shame to so yeah. I, I understand that I'm limited that I like what what James was talking about. I'm limited. I don't know everything. And to practice that, showing that to your children, if you're married and have kids, or to other friends, asking for help, asking for clarification on something, it's, it is like vulnerable and very rewarding to not know everything and to, and to receive opinions and, and ask for help. It's freeing. That's, That's when I've worked on a lot. And it has been very freeing. One I still struggle with, but... The last thing I know, and and you're going to do more on this later, but is, uh, where did this come from? And so it came from that growing up. And you weren't okay just being you. It, It wasn't okay. And so you had to adjust. And you became an expert at adjusting, and so you start managing outcomes. You start figuring out how to make sure people don't reject you, how you can get approval, avoid disapproval, and it's a constant managing game. Giving that up is scary because it was survival. And so this is not easy at all. Listening to this podcast about shame, it's, it's not that easy. And uh, it's like what I call a death experience. I'd rather, I'd rather die than do that. Um, you go back and report, boy, I had another death experience this week. This is what I did. Um, I was so worried how it was going to end up, but I did it anyway, and it works. Yeah. So that's kind of what I would end on. And, and it it will take some professional help sometimes if there's trauma in the background because that's where a lot of shame comes from also. Yeah. Childhood trauma, trauma, all that. Todd? Thanks for being with us. You bet. It's glad we, to see you guys again. We appreciate your... Always glad to have you on. ...your insights and um, kind of helping us answer some of these big questions. Um, what do, Someone give it... James, what do you want to tell our, our anonymous question submitters? What I would want to tell all of them is um, that there is hope, that we love you, that God loves you, and there absolutely is hope for healing for change, and for a happy, healthy life. 
And I want to thank you for having the courage to ask these questions because you are not the only person who has these questions. And because you had the courage to reach out and ask, we did this post. And because of your courage, hopefully someone will get something from this um, to help them with kind of the same questions. So that's a that's a vulnerability move right there, right? Talk about kind of what Todd was ending on. So we we appreciate you. Um, we hope that you you know some of our other posts, men's stories. If you haven't heard us, other anonymous questions. You can find us on Instagram at Unashamed Unafraid, Facebook, anywhere podcasts are found. You can also visit the website and uh, shoot us an anonymous question. If you're listening to this post, you have a question, totally share it with us. We'll get whoever we can to come in and answer it in the right way. Uh, send us any feedback. Give us a like wherever you're listening and help us out. And a new uh, so we've been having this discussion. Um, and, and if you have a recovery story that you want to share, um, we want to hear about it. We want you to share it. And so if you will send uh, myself, James, Chris, anyone an email, um, just go. You can go to our website and see him. It's uh, all of our first names: Jason, Chris, Steve, James at ct at. Uh, unashamedandafraid.com let us know we'd love to hear from you so uh, and the anonymous questions can be right at the very top right side of the website it just says ask anonymous questions right there yep you can can submit it there send us an email if you can't find it Um, love your hearts keep battling recovery is worth it there's hope and uh, until next time stay unashamed and unafraid